Hey, quick note before we start the show. It is the last week to fill out NPR's podcast survey and tell us how you spend time with podcasts. How many, how often, and how come? It's a short and anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. Again, that's npr.org slash podcast survey. All one word. Add your thoughts and thanks. This is Rough Translation from NPR. Caterina Fernandes-Martins grew up in Castelo Branco, a small city in Portugal about two hours from Lisbon. A place where nothing happens, like the place that I really wanted to escape when I was growing up. Back then, in the 1990s, it was the kind of place where the sight of a foreigner was unusual enough to merit an article in the local newspaper. But this one sleepy city has become a destination for expats. The other day when I went to the groceries and someone told me, yes, we just moved from Brooklyn, I was like, what? Brooklyn, like my dream place, Brooklyn? What, what are you telling? What are you talking about? Why didn't you leave Brooklyn? Oh, it's insufferable in there now. I was like, what? Katerina is a freelance reporter, and she has been following this extraordinary influx of foreigners to Portugal, an influx that has sped up during the pandemic as more workers and companies decide you really can work from anywhere, so why not work from Portugal? With the sun and the beaches and a cheaper living. I'm sold. Yeah, I'm sold too. <laughs> The Portuguese government has courted these digital nomads with tax incentives and expedited visas and other perks, and a promise. A kind of, let's call it a Southern European attitude toward work-life balance. How many times have you left early, cancelled a meeting, or otherwise changed your plan? How many times have you said you were going, but stayed right where you were, sinking in the sand? This is from a 2017 brand campaign called Can't Skip Portugal. How many times did you look at yourself from another perspective and grasp? It's telling that Portugal is aligning itself towards the future of work. So voyage out. Let the wind blow through your sails. Explore, dream and discover. And the ideal work-life balance. Just respecting each other's dignity. Because after all, we can't skip life. Sounds pretty good. Well, our story today is about what happened when Portugal decided to go a step further and inscribe work-life balance not just into the country's brand campaign, but into its laws. Good morning, Web Summit. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, dear minister. Good morning. Anna. Good morning. Good morning to all of you. I think we all went through... This is the Minister of Labor, Ana Mendes Godinho, speaking with a moderator in November 2021 at the Web Summit in Lisbon. And you also trying to catch some digital nomads... Well, uh, this, uh, the pandemic also showed to everyone that you can work from anywhere to anywhere. So this, this gives... And she said that Portugal wants to be known as a country that is very friendly towards workers. Wherever they are, it, you can work from Portugal to any place in the world. Uh, I think a great moment to discuss this this week, because this week is, is being discussed yes. exactly in the parliament, in the Portuguese parliament, yes. the, the approval of a special measure. To Not just an ad campaign, but a special measure to amend the labor code. To manage our work-life balance. So I again think that... And in particular, the amendment that got the most attention was this the right to disconnect. Portugal is not playing around with work-life balance. This Portugal's morning. Minister of Labour and Social Security says the government plans to make remote working as easy as possible. Uh, yeah, they're trying to draw a line in the sand that separates your work life from your personal life. And from now on, 
Portuguese employers are forbidden illegal to contact workers outside office hours. So if a boss is caught breaking the law, breaking the law, breaking the law, they face fines. Employers could be fined if they do. Wow, Portugal. This is so gangster. Making it illegal. To many observers, like comedian Trevor Noah, this law sounded like a dream come true. You realize that means now when your boss calls you during dinner, you can just pick up the phone and be like, hold on, hold on, hold on, sir. Uh, yes, let me put you on a conference call with the police, bitch! <laughs> it's not a crime. You can't actually be arrested. But employers might pay a fine of up to 9,690 euros for every errant text or email. And the way the law is written, any worker in Portugal can file a complaint, though um, not freelancers. So I I cannot report on you, Gregory. (laughs) Well, yes, I was just thinking I have definitely emailed you on a Sunday and a Saturday (laughs) and after hours. But of course, the time difference. But uh, so you don't have a case against me, right? (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. This is Rough Translation. I'm Gregory Warner. It's our series, At Work. Today on the show, when your country's brand is escape, but you can't. It's been seven months since that loss announcement. We check in on how it's going. There's a lot more, not even much more beneath the surface, but right beneath the surface, there's a whole different story. We dig into the true story of a trendy new law and dredge up some surprising ghosts from Portugal's past. That still haunt young workers today. The boss is in charge and everyone is submissive to them. We're stuck at work with Rough Translation back after this break. The following message comes from NPR sponsor REI. Chief Customer Officer Ben Steele shares the importance of engaging their co-op community to make positive change in the outdoors. REI cannot single-handedly solve issues like sustainability, like climate change, like equity and participation in the outdoors. But if you think about the ripple effect of what uh, millions of people can do together, um, what's possible starts to get pretty exciting pretty fast. To learn more, go to rei.com slash better is out there. We are back with Rough Translation. I'm Gregory Warner. When we first set out to report this story, we figured we'd find someone who made a complaint under this new law and then just look at what happened. But that turned out to be kind of hard to do. We weren't able to find any public announcements of an employer actually forced to pay a fine. The Working Conditions Authority, which handles these cases, did not get back to us with any information on this. And we also reached out to top labor lawyers in the country. They'd not heard of any complaints. And so Katerina put out a call to workers who might have a complaint of bosses encroaching on their personal time. The people we spoke to told us that after hours calls, that wasn't the half of it. My name is Alexandra. My name is Andrea. I worked in the banking sector. I am Alexandra. Olá, sou José. I'm Jose. I'm an engineer in the construction industry. I have experienced several situations of abuse related to successive contact outside of working hours. We often work 16 hours a day, uh, seven days a week, no holidays or vacations whatsoever. 
On average, the Portuguese work some of the longest hours for the least pay in all of Europe. It was just demand, 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 demand. Longer than England, longer than Germany. So there's a culture favoring the person that comes first at the office and leaves last. But workers also told us about more serious abuses. No overtime paid when they make you work late. Public humiliations, verbal abuse, people accused of disloyalty just for asking for personal time. I asked for human resources to help me. They accused me of being sick and crazy. And then along comes the right to disconnect. About the law that prohibits the company from calling employees outside working hours, I think it's amazing. I paid a lot of attention to it. So you asked if I was willing to present charges. I thought many times about filing a complaint. And I am not, uh, for many reasons. If anyone knew that was me, uh, I would feel the consequences, obviously. Because it is a small market, a working market. Where everybody knows everybody, and stories get changed, and after a while you simply cannot control the outcome. The workers we heard from had many reasons for not filing a complaint. Some worried about backlash. I always felt I would only file a complaint after I left the company for the fear of reprisal. Some said they were just used to late-night calls, and others felt like a complaint would not do anything. I believe that, in Portugal, it's not possible to implement this law. The Portugal they described, it was the opposite of the brand campaign. Not only was work-life balance scarce, but defending your right to disconnect was at best futile, at worst fatal to your future career. Given all that, could the Portuguese government enforce this law? Hello, hello, Gregory. My name we is jumped Greg on a Zoom call Gino. with Minister uh, Ana Mendes Godinho. She's the one you heard earlier speaking at the Web Summit. I'm the Minister of Labor, Solidarity and Social Security in Portugal, completely committed to this new age of labor and, uh, uh, and promoting Portugal as a great destination to work. Olá, bom dia. I'm Catarina Fernandes Martins, so I'm a Portuguese journalist, and so I am the Portuguese side of this story. Fantastic Portuguese girl. Thank you, Catarina. Yes, <laughs> thank you. So we asked her about this culture in Portugal predating the pandemic for employees to work long hours and be contacted after hours. This is a, a, a question of culture, which I think it's crucial to change the mindset. According to the Portuguese newspaper Expresso, which analyzed labor ministry data, most workers under age 34 make less than 12,000 euros a year, are still living with their parents or family, and have jobs that are not permanent. Minister Godinho called this rise in precarious work a new form of dictatorship. Because that makes young people completely uh, dependent and in an uncertain and certain um, uh, ability to manage their future, to decide their lives, to decide if they have children or not. So our major goal is to uh, fight precarious work were not justified, of course. You said that it's very important that, uh, to change a mindset, change a culture. When we've talked to, to Portuguese workers, they've they express cynicism that complaints will be heard. 
Um, it feels like the best sign that this is a real law for, for Portuguese citizens would be that a complaint is heard and a fine is levied against an employer that the actual law's teeth. When do you expect that that might actually happen? Well, it depends, of course, on the number of, uh, of, uh, of uh, claims that, uh, that exist. But I can assure everyone that the Labour Authority is completely engaged uh, with, uh, with this law. So uh, you can have my word in terms of compromise of the Labour Authority of uh, acting when the claims are presented. And actually, you mentioned that the complaints are coming. So, so how many people have filed a complaint at this point? How many cases are in the courts at this point? I'm sorry, I, I'm not, 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 I don't know information. I have no information about the number of claims. I know that more than complaints right now, we have doubts. I'm just, I'm there now to see if it exists. Uh, here it is. Not long after we met with the minister, Katerina logged onto the Labor Authority website. And he says, make your complaint. Make your complaint. And I click there. Then you have to, to be registered here to enter. So what are you seeing? Is there like a box where you type out what happened? So there's no box for the right to disconnect. There's clearly a box for, to ask for intervention for harassment which is under a different law, but I'm not seeing the right to disconnect one. This new right to disconnect law was reminding Katerina of an old Portuguese saying. Para inglês ver. So we have a saying which goes, we do things for the Englishman to see. And, and who would be the Englishman that it was for? Yeah, so the, the Englishman would be people, the foreigners that can just pick up their stuff and move to paradise country, <laughs> you know? So it, it would be the, for um, digital nomads. Digital nomads. Because after all, we can't skip life. You remember that 2017 ad campaign aimed at luring expats to Portugal? That campaign, it was done under the leadership of the then Secretary of State for Tourism, who, well, we met her already. She is now Portugal's labor minister. I was previously a secretary of state for tourism. And during that time, I used to uh, position and promote Portugal as the country who 500 years ago discovered the world by sea. And now uh, we are being discovered, of course, as a tourism destination. Do you see a connection between your work there and your work now? Yes, I do uh, feel there is uh, this uh, huge connection between promoting Portugal as a good destination to live and to visit and, of course, to work. Just a note about the minister's reference to Portugal's colonial past, you know, discovering the world by sea. That is actually where the phrase, laws for the Englishman to see, has its origin. I just want to thank a Brazilian friend who works for the UN who clued us into the first use of this phrase in the early 1800s when England demanded the Portugal end the slave trade in Brazil. Brazil was then a Portuguese colony. England was then the most powerful country in the world and a crucial trading partner. So Brazil passed a law abolishing the slave trade. But the trade continued. It was just in pa on paper, in the law. But uh, yes, you, you do it for to convince someone. You don't do it to actually change things. 
it actually made slavery harder to eradicate because it went under the radar. For all the abolitionist Englishmen and Englishwomen out there, the end of the Portuguese trade was settled, thanks to the law. What's in it for the Portuguese government, though? It plans to build a virtual workforce through... So as Katerina watched all the news reports around the right to disconnect, her heart sank. Portugal's big bet is that it will be an attractive place for people who can work remotely. Explore its scenic beaches. Nice weather, beaches. Boost the tourism sector. Lower cost of living. Without having to worry about work. So who knows? Maybe these new laws might tip the scales and convince more Americans to move there. The way things are right now, Portugal seems seems reasonable. That's some beautiful shots we had uh, of Portugal. It's a, it's a beautiful place. It is. Beautiful place. The marketing of Portugal to expats did not start with the right to disconnect, but it is part of a trend. There was this very fast, wild, savage gentrification process that started happening. So many people are priced out. Because now you have to have a country that's shared with wealthier people. Katerina raised this with Minister Godinho in our interview. Is this law only a promotion campaign? Well... First of all, let me tell you, this is not a law for English to see. This is a, a law for those who work in Portugal. So uh, this, is, uh, this is obvious. Um, but uh, as I was uh, saying, and sorry, uh, this is a little bit re- repetitive because we are uh, through the same question over and over again. Minister, I know we're, we're running over... Yes, sorry, but I, I have an appointment at 11, so I'm a little bit under pressure. Well, thank you, Minister. Thank you, Gregory. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Good work. I left that conversation feeling confused. Even if the minister is abundantly focused on promoting Portugal abroad, she'd also said that workplace culture was a problem. Studies show that burnout in Portugal is above average in Europe. So if workers feel vulnerable, and the government now has a law that speaks to this, what's the problem? Like, why was Portugal's workplace culture still so hard to change? Rough Translation, back after this break. This message comes from NPR sponsor Basecamp. The good news is that your business is growing, but so are the number of files, emails, chats, and meetings. It's becoming impossible to stay on top of it all. Your team needs help keeping up. No problem. Join the thousands of growing businesses each week that use Basecamp. It's the all-in-one place solution for organizing and collaborating. Keep it together. Put it in Basecamp. To learn more, visit Basecamp.com NPR. We're back with Rough Translation. I'm Gregory Warner telling this story with Caterina Fernandez-Martins to understand how Portuguese might be seeing this new law, this right to disconnect. I'm going to go back and give a bit of a history lesson, so bear with me and uh, don't um, get too bored. Atenção, senhores espectadores. Muito boa tarde. A partir deste momento, o movimento das Forças Armadas... In 1974, Portugal overthrew the dictatorship in this a romantic, poetic revolution. This was May Day in Lisbon. In which we always grew up saying, 
Not a single shot was fired. 200,000 people took to the streets, strewing red carnations and dancing with the troops. And we put carnations inside um, machine guns instead. A united people will never be defeated. The carnation revolution. How did you know whether everybody in the army agreed with you? One song. A song forbidden by the dictatorship. What was the song called? Grandula. Grandula Vila Morena. It is a, it's a protest song. Grandula Vila Morena. Grandula Vila Morena. Terra da fraternidade. The thing you need to know about this dictatorship that ruled Portugal since the 1930s, it had a particular view about work. The dictator, Antonio de Oliveira Salazar, believed that the workplace was this great instrument of social control. Every worker was ordered to be loyal to their boss. Every company was loyal to the state. The dictator is the father of the great family that is the Portuguese people, right? Salazar's vision fused autocratic rule with the more conservative doctrines of the Catholic Church. And then the boss, at every company, every factory, is the father of the family that is his workers. Secret police would arrest workers who made trouble or spoke out about worker treatment. They were seen as agents of communism. The father is in charge, and everyone is submissive to that. There's this extraordinary, remarkable speech by Salazar in which he repeats, we don't discuss, we don't discuss, we don't discuss. We don't discuss God and virtue. We don't discuss the homeland and its history. We don't discuss authority and its prestige. We don't discuss the glory of work and its duty. The dictatorship was overthrown in 1974. Caterina was born in 1990, after Portugal became a democracy and after it joined the EU. The message she grew up hearing from her father was one befitting a democracy. Discuss everything. He is a romantic in many ways. Every April, on the anniversary of the Carnation Revolution, they'd sing those revolutionary songs about worker dignity. There are always tales about democracy, freedom, resistance. And he raised her to speak her mind, to always speak her mind. Like he fostered arguments, he fostered debates. At the dinner table. At the dinner table. I mean, you can hear the joy in her voice when she remembers arguing with her dad. There was always debate, and I'm already (laughs) someone like that in my nature, but I'm always debating with him, and I've done that since as I was able to speak. Katerina started her first job as an intern at a top newspaper in Lisbon in 2011, when Portugal was in an economic spiral. A third of young people were unemployed. It was a very difficult time. She found herself working long hours, but more than that... You're made to feel very bad for leaving at 1 a.m. And there seemed like nowhere to turn. She ended up working herself to exhaustion and ended up in the hospital. And uh, the doctor said it was like a beginning of a burnout, and she asked, for how long haven't you been seeing the sun? But when Katerina took a week off on doctor's orders, she came back to find out that a treasured assignment that she'd been promised had been taken off her plate. 
She felt like she was being punished for taking sick leave, which even at that time was against the law. And so Katerina did what her father always encouraged her to do. She spoke up. I, I, I raised this concern that I was being... Um, that I was being punished for being sick. And they uh, sarcastically and joked with me saying, if you would appeal to the constitutional court, they would have your back, so go and do that. But it was said in a, a bullying way. But Katerina, she ends up calling her lawyer father for... Legal slash dad advice. Instead, he told her... You're just you're just complaining. You're just like... A, in Portuguese, we say flor de estufa. Uh, so it's... Um, uh, a flower that uh, is can only grow in a greenhouse. She needed to learn this is how work is in Portugal. Never mind the revolutionary songs of workers' dignity they used to sing together. <laughs> there was this idea that you were so protected as a child, maybe now you just don't know how to adapt yourself to the working place or something. After that internship, Katerina never worked for a Portuguese company again. She didn't want to repeat that experience. And she tried to put that job behind her. She moved overseas for a while, worked for international outlets as a freelancer. But her relationship with her dad wasn't the same after that. They stopped those kind of joyous debates about democracy. They stopped singing the revolutionary songs. I remember looking for the law and finding no one that would want to implement the law to protect me. And the feeling she felt then, like she was in a place where the law could not reach, that is the feeling that came rushing back to her after talking to the minister about the right to disconnect. It's not that the, the laws, is that no one will uh, use those laws to, to actually protect you or to allow yourself to be protected. And so you become cynic of all the other laws and you become cynic of democracy. Most of the young workers she talked to had not heard of the right to disconnect. They didn't pay attention to it, just was another headline, you know. They weren't planning to try to register a complaint. Because, she says, they'd seen other laws without teeth, other laws for the Englishman to see. To, to sell a lie, basically. It was that that really upset me. Because you were sold a lie growing up. Probably, Yeah. So when you called up your dad um, when you were in that terrible job and you told him about what you were going through, what would you have wanted to hear from him? I just want him to tell me something like, I can help you, but I believe you. That's all I wanted. I believe you. What you're going through is wrong. Her father never said that. Instead, he called her spoiled for not taking it in silence. So what did he know about Portuguese work culture that he'd neglected to share with his daughter growing up? Or had Katerina somehow absorbed the wrong lesson from her revolutionary dad? In almost 10 years, she'd never asked him about that moment until... Um, tu quando eu estava no... As part of reporting this story, she sat down with her father, Antonio Martins, in her brother's old bedroom, and she asked him that question she'd never asked before. 
das horas de trabalho. So I asked him if he remembered when I started telling him about um, the abuses and the harassment happening at my workplace, former workplace. Me comecei a queixar dessa altura. Sim, lembro perfeitamente. Lembro perfeitamente. Em que andavas perfeitamente exausta. He said he perfectly remembers that I was completely exhausted. Sou de uma geração em que o trabalho fosse quais fossem as condições era para ser feito, para ser cumprido. He also said that he was raised with the idea that once you have a job, you have to do everything that's demanded of you at that job. Antonio went to law school at Lisbon University in the 80s. This was just years after the dictatorship had collapsed. All his professors were raised in that fascist system. A vida prática era muito difícil e íamos vermos confrontados com situações altamente complexas e, e tínhamos que estar preparados para isso tudo. Isto era quase um regime de guerra. And so at the university, the teachers would always tell him that they were preparing them for a war, the war of the real world and the difficulties of what it is to practice law. What does that mean to prepare for work like you're preparing for war? Like, what does that look like? It's this idea that you are not in charge of your life. Adults or politicians or employers or fathers, they are the bosses of you. When Rough Translation returns, Katerina finally confronts her dad about what has been haunting her all these years. So you asked, did you think I was spoiled? And he said, yes. Yes, he did. So how was that to hear? It was amazing. After this break. We are back with Rough Translation. I'm Gregory Warner. Sometimes reporting can lead you to odd places. And when we started digging into this new Portuguese law and a brand campaign, we did not expect it to lead us to the reporter sitting in her brother's old bedroom interviewing her dad. But the story that Antonio told of his mistreatment in Lisbon Law School, it helped Katerina see her work experience in a totally new way. He describes professors humiliating students in public, going to exams in a state of terror, and many colleagues giving up before graduation. There was no concept of personal time. They'd intentionally announce an exam would begin at 10 in the morning, only to make them wait until 6 at night. They had no life of their own. Their lives and their schedule belonged to the university. When people talk about fascism today, they tend to look at the more overt forms of violence, like repression of free speech and nighttime arrests, torture of opposition. Salazar's Portugal had all that too. But authoritarian societies also need quieter ways to make people submit. And these lessons in obedience that Antonio learned in law school, they stayed with him all his life. He used to go to court, very nervous, feeling that he had to prove something to his teachers who were very far away. And that very often clouded his clarity um, when he was in court. And that's something that still 
difficult to overcome and that's all the, the wounds of that time. And so Antonio was determined that the people around him would not suffer as he had. He covered up how he felt at work and he taught his daughter to feel good about entering the work world. Somehow, with the years and the democratization process, he always thought, oh, this is going to change. They're going to modernize themselves. And it was the opposite. Things had gotten worse, he says. For example, just this year at Lisbon University, that's where Antonio went to school, students took the rare step of revealing abuses in the press. And a university investigation found that teachers engaged in, quote, attempts at intimidation or reprisals, provocative and humiliating acts, aggressive behavior that demonstrates a lack of due respect or consideration. Antonio says he wasn't surprised. His awakening came years ago when Katerina first called him to say she'd been hospitalized for exhaustion. They said, I was afraid that I had spoiled you and your brother because, of course, we had better living conditions than our parents because we were the generation living in democracy. When he finally understood the full scope of things and what was happening and, and he realized that, that this country is ill. It wasn't just me who was ill. This country was ill. I think that was a very important moment with my father. I can say that my resentment washed off. And actually, a lot of my resentment towards the country also washed off in that moment. We had a fascist regime until very, very recently. And that's something that really, really messes you up. And still contaminates the soils. It's the system and it's, it's, it's the, the, in our inheritance. Less than a week after Katerina interviewed her dad, it was the anniversary of the Carnation Revolution, Freedom Day. I wanted to go get some carnations because I always create red carnations in April 25th. This year was a special milestone. Portugal has now spent more days under democracy than under dictatorship. And so she and her dad got in the car and went to find some flowers. So we went into take a, a, a ride into the countryside, which was covered in flowers, and it was a beautiful spring day. The sun was high in the sky, and I just really felt like I needed and wanted to hear those songs. And I played them in the car, and, and it was... It was very emotional, because he said... At some point, he says, those really were remarkable days. And I had to feel the disappointment for him as well. Because he got out of a dictatorship and thought everything was okay. And then to realize that it wasn't, I think it's much worse than what it is for me. And 
and so I just I just felt his pain <laughs> and uh, and I think that's what I heard when he said those really were remarkable days as if those days are over <laughs> In the last few years, I haven't heard him sing. He just sang along with me now. He just really sang with from his guts. I'm just like, come on. We need to cling to this. We need to we not we cannot give up. We cannot give this up. <laughs> and I could feel that that romance is still very much alive in him. <laughs> Katerina's relationship with her dad, it's back to what it used to be. And she started looking differently at that abusive job she had so many years ago. You know, I thought, okay, I left that workplace. It's 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 gone. It's not part of my life anymore. And that whatever happens at work shouldn't say something about who you are as a person, right? But now she realized that a dictatorship that fell long before she was born had used the workplace to do just that, to evaluate one's worth as a person. And I just had assumed that it's work. It was something done by people that you don't know so well. It can't hurt you, but it can. Work can hurt you. Reporting on the right to disconnect has given you finally the ability to disconnect from that work experience that was so many years ago. Yeah, it's... I have a clean slate. (laughs) I think we need to kind of go through this process, uh, maybe not as crazy and deep, but some part of this process. And this is what I mean by entangling ourselves from it. But uh, I had to go examine the history of fascism in my country in order to do that. (laughs) Next week, at work, you know that saying, if at first you don't succeed... Etc. Etc. Yeah, the Silicon Valley type of conversation is always let's talk about failure because it's cool to talk about it. But what if you are an entrepreneur in a country with government corruption and power outages and endless bureaucracy? Does that mantra to fail fast need a rewrite? Oh yes, I yeah. Fail fast, fail forward. I have, I have. In fact, because my friend she says that, what if you fail slow and you can't fail fast? <laughs> Then what do you do? That's next week on our series, At Work. Prendo la Villa Morena Terra da Fraternidad Just a friendly reminder, we'd love to hear what you think of all the shows we make here at NPR. Please go to npr.org slash podcast survey to let us know how we're doing. This episode was produced by Adelina Lancianese, co-reported by Katerina Fernandez-Martins, 
edited by Luis Treas. Every podcast takes a village, and the Rough Translation team includes Justine Yan, Tessa Paoli, Pablo Arguez, and our new intern, Nick M. Nevis. Emily Bogle is our visuals editor. Our supervising producer is Liana Simstrom. Our supervising senior producer is Bruce Oster. Big thanks to Tony Cavan, Gina Moore, Miriam Bialik Van Wies, and Bruno Brandt. Thanks also to Professor Ricardo Nerona and Jose Matos for helping us understand Salazar's Portugal. And thanks to the amazing editorial ears of Katz Laszlo, Robert Krawich, and Sana Krasikov. A special shout out to Katarina's radio teacher and mine, Rob Rosenthal. Thanks, Rob. Special thanks to the Web Summit for use of archival tape. Grandola. Grandola Villa Morena was written and performed by Jose Alfonso. We used it courtesy of the Alfonso Estate and Nuno Alfonso at Mies Cinco. We'll have a link to the song's lyrics in Portuguese and in English in our show notes. John Ellis composed our theme music, additional music by First Com Music and Blue Dot Sessions, mastering by Josh Newell, fact-checking by Nicolette Kahn, legal guidance from Micah Ratner and Eduardo Miselli, voiceover help from Lauren Einhorn, Nina Phil, and Josh Lash. NPR's senior vice president for programming is Anya Grunman. I'm Gregory Warner, back next week with more Rough Translation at Work. Grandola tua vontade Jurei ter por companheira Assombrando uma zinheira Que já não sabia dar